Mass incarceration, the widespread imprisonment of predominantly young black men, has reached levels unprecedented in human history. The number of prisoners in America has grown five times over since 1972. That's up to 1.6 million people behind bars. More and more Americans are coming into the criminal justice system and staying longer through policies like mandatory sentencing, stricter probation, and longer pretrial detention periods. That increasing number of people in the criminal justice system are coming mainly from neighborhoods of concentrated poverty. In 1993, there was an op-ed in the New York Times that showed that 70% of prisoners in New York State came from just eight neighborhoods in New York City. This statistic caught the eye of Tom Cousins, who would eventually found purpose-built communities. It influenced his thinking about how to address poverty. New York State is not unique. Across the country, neighborhoods that have historically been discriminated against have fallen in mass incarceration's crosshairs. The removal of young black men from their communities not only sets them back in their individual pursuits of the American dream, it further separates communities of color from racial equity and opportunity. Welcome to This Is Community, a podcast series by purpose-built communities about breaking the cycle of poverty and creating vibrant communities where everyone has the opportunity to thrive. I'm Alexandra Wiggins, a community development advisor with purpose-built communities. In this episode, we hear from the criminologist who wrote that New York Times op-ed in 1993. Dr. Todd Clear presented to our annual conference in Orlando, Florida in 2018. He talked about how mass incarceration impoverishes communities and is a tool to reinforce and maintain institutional racism. Dr. Clear is a professor of criminal justice at Rutgers University, and he has authored 13 books and over 100 articles and book chapters on the subject. Here now is Dr. Todd Clear. Thank you, David. That's terrific. So I want to talk about the great American prison experiment. Um, so the great prison experiment really is, uh, is an, uh, uh, we didn't do an, an experiment uh, uh, because no, uh, an experiment is, hey, I want to try something, see how it works out. Uh, and if it works, we'll keep doing it. And if it doesn't, we'll try something new, right? We didn't do that. But one useful way of thinking about what the United States did with its prison system uh, in your lifetime and mine is that it was a great experiment. In, in 1972, there were 200,000 prisoners in the United States. Uh, the, the incarceration rate for the country was about 100 people per 100,000. By the year 2010, that number had grown to 1.6 million. That's roughly speaking what we have now. Um, and that rate was 500 per 100,000. So in other words, we grew the number of people in prison by eightfold, and we grew the, grew the rate by which we put people in prison by fivefold. Um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about how we did that, but let me just put that in some perspective. Nowhere in the known history of the human race has this been done before. Um, I don't know if anybody here is reading the book Sapiens. It's a, uh, it's a great book, I, I recommend it. But it goes back to, you know, about uh, 250,000 BC. Not even back then did they do this. And um, the only time that we came close was after the Civil War in a handful of southern states when in order to do something about African-American men who had been freed from slavery, 
prison systems grew. So there is a historical precedent for what we did, and I'll let you draw some of the parallels because I think they're important. So if we want to end this, by the way, uh, back in the day, back in the 80s, when I used to talk about the problem of prison growth, and uh, 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 the, the audiences were often small because most people thought prisons were a good thing, we need more of them. But there's a, a consensus has grown today that, that the American, the US prison system is too big, it's, and, it, and we need to do something about it. So I'm gonna talk to not today about ending mass incarceration, which I think would be an enormously important goal for us to leave here as one of the, one of the consequences of the work we're trying to do. If we were to end the, um, the uh, mass, incarceration, mass incarceration in the United States, we, we might set a goal of having 600,000 people in prison today instead of 1.6 million. Uh, that would be a rate of 200,000, which is roughly speaking twice what it's always been. But, that's, but that would be a real, a real achievement, right? To do that, we would be still high by national and international standards. So for example, 200,000 is twice as high as most European countries. But um, we would, to do that, we would have to reduce the current prison population by 900,000, by 900,000 people. So how do, how do we do that? Um, so to do that, I want to first talk about how, we, how you get big prisons, how you get a lot of people locked up in prisons. And I'm going to call this the iron law of prison populations. Jim Austin and I uh, coined this term. Prison populations are produced by the number of people who go there and how long they stay. Wow. That's a PhD right there. <laughs> the reason I say that is we spend a lot of time talking about other things. We talk about drug treatment programs and reentry programs, and I'm going to say a few things about them down the road here. But prison populations are like hotels. They're fully booked if you have a lot of people going in a lot, or if you have a few people going in and they stay a long time. And what we did in the United States was to put more people in prison, I'll show you the numbers, and have them stay a longer period of time. We also can keep a prison population high by returning people to prison at a high rate. So you can let them out, but if you make them all go back again, it's as though you didn't really let them out, right? So th that's the iron law of prison populations I'll come back to. This is a chart I'll show you a couple of times. The, the, um, the dark line is the crime rate. Um, and the red line is the incarceration rate. Two things that are interesting about this, you can't see the years, but the crime rate starts to go up in the early, late 50s, early 60s. Incarceration rate doesn't start to go up until at least a decade later. We had, the crime rates were actually beginning to peak when the incarceration rate started to grow. And during the time period when there was the greatest growth, this, this, this um, slope right there, you can see the crime rates are starting to, to level out. And we've had dropping crime rates since the early 1990s. But the incarceration rate has stayed high since then. We know, criminologists know, that the relationship between the prison population and the, and the crime rate is not that strong. Crime rates are produced by lots of things. Prison populations are produced by, as we now know, two things. How many people go there and how long they stay. So the great prison experiment, um, we were able to get this, this experiment by changing how many people go to prison and how long they stay. I mean, in the 1970s, we increased 
uh, we, we, most of the increases in the 1970s were due to the and increases in crime rates. Arrest rates were about the same. The rates of sending people to prison were about the same. If you have more crime, you have more arrests, you have more people go to prison if you don't change anything else, right? In the 1980s, we passed a bunch of mandatory sentencing laws. We started restricting the availability of probation for certain kinds of offenses. And uh, what that meant was more people went to prison. You have the same number of arrests, same number of convictions, you don't use, you use probation less, you use prison more. In the 1990s, we started increasing the length of stay that people would serve. And you remember the, the big Clinton uh, Criminal Justice Act in 1996, which said that people convicted of certain kinds of crimes had to serve 85% of their sentences, and states all around the country started increasing length of stay, and that was in the 1990s. Uh, also in the 1990s, we started um, increasing the rate of return to prison by, by increasing uh, the restrictions we put on people and enforcing them more carefully. Uh, so you started uh, doing more drug tests, you started doing more surprise home visits, you started doing more surveillance, you had more rules, and you had more rule enforcement. So what you get is you can have a drop in crime rate and deep cuts in the number of people being arrested for crimes since 1990s and still keep a high prison population because you're sending more of those people to prison and you're having them stay longer. But today, Crime is about what it was in 1972. So if I said to you, we're going to do an experiment. We're going to increase by eight times the number of fellow citizens we put in prison. We're going to increase by five times the rate that we put them in prison. What do you think? You would say this, we can't afford that. That's going to be really wildly expensive. I said, well, just figure we'll get the money somehow. What do you think? Well, crime rate's going to go down. Well, here's what we got. We have afforded it by not investing in schools, by not investing in roads, uh, by uh, reducing the amount of money we spend on, on health care, uh, and we have the same crime weight than when we started. So if we really were doing this as an experiment, we would say, time to wrap it up, friends. Right? Time to wrap it up. So that's that chart again. It'll show you what you see is the crime rate today is roughly speaking what it was in the early 1970s, and the, the incarceration rate is is uh, five times what it was in the 1970s. That's not a, a success story by far. This is the mix of people that happened. Uh, so in 1980, about 59% uh, of the people. I don't know if you can see this in the back, so I'm going to do a couple of figures here. 59% of the people were uh, in prison were there for a violent crime. 30% for a property crime and 6% for a drug crime. What did we do in the 80s? We started saying, if you do drugs, you're going to go to prison. Mandatory sentencing. And by uh, 1993, uh, the proportion of violent people, you know, remember the prison population is now about four times larger, but the proportion of people serving time for violence is down to less than half. The property proportion is down to less than a fourth, but people serving time for drugs is now more than a fourth. They are serving, by the way, short sentences. So they're coming in and going back out again and coming back in again and coming back in again. They're cycling through the prison system. And then we, we have now all these length of stay things that happened in the 90s. So in the 90s now, 55%, uh, this is last year's data, 55% of the people are serving time for violence, uh, uh, about uh, a little bit over a fourth for property crimes, and we're now down to 15% for drug crimes. Not because we're putting few drug people in prison, but because people are staying longer periods of time for a violent crime and account for more days. They just occupy more space. So here's the big news about this experiment that we've been doing. 
Prison and jail populations stabilized in around 2000, and they started to, re, uh, to um, decline in 2009. The uh, nation's prison population has dropped almost 7% from its peak. That's, a, that's very good news. The nation's incarceration rate has declined by 8% uh, uh, from the peak in 2008. And uh, the, so the great prison experiment is over. States are no longer saying we've got to build more prisons because we've got to do something about crime. That's just not a conversation that's going on. Prison and jail, we also now know that prison and jail populations have little impact on crime rates. So we sort of answered that question. We also know that states with high imprisonment rates often have the highest crime rates, especially violent crime rates, and that's because they got the high prison rates because they have the high crime rates. They're not preventing crime by building their prisons. They're just building prisons because they have more crime. And the states with the biggest drop in the prison populations also have the biggest drop in the crime rates. The state of New Jersey has dropped its prison population by, uh, by a third since its peak, and it has one of the highest dropping crime rates in the United States. So prisons didn't produce something that called crime rate drop. Crime rate drop produced something called prison drop. But it's not been nearly the size of the crime rate drop. So the big news, the third big news is what I want to call coercive mobility that I want to talk to you about, which is that the high rate of incarceration concentrates in certain impoverished communities. And, it, and in that concentration has contributed to both inequality and injustice in those communities. I'm going to show you some maps. Concentrated impact of incarceration. This was a, a, um, uh, um, uh, one of the uh, recent books that I just wrote about uh, imprisoning communities. So we know prison is not an equal opportunity employer. Prison concentrates in particular places. It concentrates by gender and age. 90% of the people in prison are men. Uh, the, uh, uh, an average of 700,000 men go to prison each year at age 29. They come out at age 32 on the average, on the average. So think about what men are supposed to be doing between the ages of 29 and 32 with their lives. And think what we're doing with them is we're putting them in a cage. And they come out with a lost three years when men are supposed to be doing you know, the most kind of trajectory of a man's life. Over a million children have a parent behind bars. That size is actually older. They now think it's about two million. And, and if, you don't think, if you think that is not affecting those children, well, you know that it's affecting, because this is what you do for a living. Uh, the, the, uh, there's more concentration by race. Black men are six times more likely to be incarcerated than white men. For women, the ratio is eight to one. In fact, the highest growing group in the prison system today is black women. 12% uh, of black men aged 20 to 40 are behind bars. 12% of, of African-American men in their 20s and 30s are locked up today, currently locked up. At these rates, one out of every three black children born today, will, uh, black males born today will be in prison sometime in his or her life, in his lifetime. That's, that's just unthinkable. Um, they're 10 times more likely to be in prison than they are to be in the labor force or on welfare. Prison is what we do with African-American men in the United States as a part of this experiment. Um, it also concentrates by place, and this is what you guys do for a living. Uh, just to give you some feeling, and you could probably talk about your own neighborhoods, but Cleveland and Baltimore neighborhoods, 10% of the adult, in some, some particular neighborhoods in Baltimore and Cleveland, 18% eight, uh, of the adult males are locked up on any given day. One out of five locked up on any given day. In, in the Brooklyn black neighborhoods, majority black neighborhoods, 12% of the people of the adult males are locked up. 
In the white neighborhoods, it's 2.7% in Brooklyn. Uh, in Chicago, over half of all people released from prison enter seven neighborhoods in the city of Chicago. Over half of the people released from prison in the state of Illinois go to seven places in Chicago. Tallahassee, and I'm going to show you some Tallahassee maps because all this work started actually when I was in Tallahassee. Uh, in two neighborhoods, nearly every family has a relative who's gone to prison. I'll tell you that story in a minute. This is uh, Delray Beach. Delray Beach is one of the richest cities in the United States. It's also one of the most uh, uh, unequal cities. It has one of the highest inequality ratings in the United States. Uh, the blue is, if you, you've seen those police pin dots where there's a crime and they put a pin in the map, you know? So this is a pin dot. That, uh, every blue dot in there is a crime that was reported in that year in Delray Beach. The, the, I forget the name of that street. That's the main drag in Delray Beach. Uh, Atlantic Avenue, thank you. And, that's the, and, and so, so what you can see is the crimes are in that area, right? And the little brown box is the Atlantic uh, section of Delray Beach. Um, some of the richest areas in the country are along the seaside, right there, the Atlantic Ocean. And you just go in a few blocks and you're in the high crime rate section of Delray Beach. This is where juveniles got arrested in Delaware Beach. The darker the uh, block, the more juveniles arrested on that block. So Delray Beach doesn't have a crime problem. Delray Beach has a, a neighborhood problem. This is um, Newark, New Jersey. Uh, is this, yeah, this is violent crimes in Newark, New Jersey. I, I work in Newark, New Jersey. A Couple of things about this map. You can see how concentrated the crimes are in certain locations. But what's also interesting about that map is if you take every street segment in Newark, you know, a street segment is, starts in this street, ends in this street, one block segment, 88% of them never report a crime every year. We've gone back 10 years every year. Now, sometimes there's a different set of streets, but basically 88% of Newark is crime-free every year, street blocks. These are jail and prison admissions in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, you can't see the numbers, but you can get the sense that the, the darker the, the block, right? This is block by block. So the really dark blocks, 200 that year. 200 men and women went to prison from that block that year in the dark blocks. I'll come back to this map in a minute. So prison as an experience, extremely concentrated by place, by race, by age, and by gender. What are the collateral consequences of that concentration? Well, for one thing, uh, for adult partners, we, we did a, a series of projects around the country in which we asked different demographers to do studies in different cities of how concentrated incarceration affected uh, uh, various aspects, not of the people who go to prison, but of the people who live in those communities where it concentrates, right? So we know a lot about what happens to people who go to prison. What about the people who are left behind? Health. Um, in Durham and Raleigh, North Carolina, African-American women were three to five times more likely to get sexually transmitted diseases when they lived in these neighborhoods than when they lived someplace else in town. Because when you have men cycling through the prison system, you de destabilize all kinds of relationships and you create sexual dynamics that make women have less power, let's say. Studies done in Australia find that Parental success, parental strategies of, of discipline, parental strategies of, of, of teaching are damaged when, when, uh, the, when a person, one of the parents goes to prison and they become worse. So parenting capacity, 
not just of the person who left behind, that person's ability to serve as a parent is damaged. So this is a, uh, a mind-blowing statistic. Men who have been released from prison six months are as likely to be living with a woman with children as men who have never been, gone to prison. They're one-fifth as likely to be married to that woman. Um, children, there's just a host of research on children. 25% uh, more likely to get involved in the juvenile justice system. Almost 30% more likely to, have, to suffer some sort of a mental illness problem. Uh, um, on and on and on. Every bad thing that can happen to a child becomes more likely if one of the parents goes to prison. So, and here's the, here's the thing. We don't say, hey, we got to do something for those children. They're unfairly being punished. They didn't do anything. We say, well, you should have picked a different set of parents. And then on communities, so the, the impact on communities on, uh, is, is widespread. It includes economic stability. For example, going to prison reduces lifetime learn earnings by 40%. If you're in a neighborhood where almost all the males have been to prison, almost all the males have 40% lifetime earning capacity reduction, which means that there's just less money in that neighborhood to spend on things like school, after school activities, support for kids, you know, uh, on and on and on. And uh, finally, uh, in a Seattle study, kids who had never had a police contact, but who lived in a neighborhood where, the, where more men went to prison from that neighborhood, were more likely to think the system was illegitimate than people who had never had a police contact lived in a different neighborhood. In other words, you're destroying the legitimacy of democracy through this mass incarceration experiment. The chapter where I review this literature is from a half a dozen different studies or cities, I'm sorry, and about 25 different studies I call death by a thousand little cuts. None of these effects is huge, but they're all additive. They add up. They add up to the fact that if you live in, in a place where we've chosen to use incarceration as the main way of dealing with the problems in that place, your life has been damaged by incarceration. This is uh, Tallahassee, where I began doing this work. This is a, a crime map of Tallahassee. What you can see is downtown Tallahassee has all the crime. Uh, and um, uh, the dots in there are prison releases in, uh, in a particular year. But this is, the, this, is, this is the relationship we found between crime and incarceration. It's a little complicated. But the, that line that goes down and then goes back up again, that's the line about the number of people from that neighborhood going into prison that year and the crime rate the next year. So if you have a few people go into prison from your neighborhood in the, first, in the year, the next year your crime rate will be expected to go down a little bit. But as the number of people going to prison from your neighborhood increases, what happens in that line? It starts going up. And so the number of people, the amount of crime your neighborhood will experience starts to increase. Large concentrations of sending people to prison increases crime rates in those places, not decreases. We found this to be true in Newark. We found this to be true in Boston. We found this to be true in Phoenix the places where we've tested that theory. You, in other words, the prison system is producing its own business. This is a map of Frenchtown section of Tallahassee. I don't know if anybody here knows Tallahassee. Frenchtown was the only place in Leon County where, where African-Americans were allowed to, to buy property after emancipation. It's been a black neighborhood for, ever since the Civil War. And uh, you can't see this very well. because uh, Can you see the dots on there? Yeah, a little bit. There's 50. Okay, I'm going to do a little mind experiment. That's one year's releases into this neighborhood in Tallahassee. And my office was right about, on, at Florida State University, was right about here, right about there. And uh, um, so that's one year's releases in Tallahassee from prison system, 50 dots. Uh, so if you can mentally double the number of dots, just use your eyes and say, oh, I'm gonna double those dots. That's exits and entries in a year. 
Because you can't go to, come back from prison unless you went to prison. And then double that number again. That's two years. And double that number again. That's a lot of dots, right? Double, double, double. That's four years. That's a high school experience for any kid growing up in that neighborhood. That's what they live in in that neighborhood if, if you're 15 and you go to high school. You can't walk from school to school, place or anywhere, without going by houses where people are going in and out of the prison system. You know how we found, by the way, and the, in, in a sense, the entire system of corrections has a, there's a parole office down around here, and all those dots go down there and pee in a bottle. That's what we decided to do. We discovered this because my wife and I uh, were doing interviews about this project, and we sat in, uh, in a, uh, we went to churches in, in Frenchtown area, and then the ministers introduced us, and then we talked to people afterwards. We went with neighborhood association uh, presidents and went around the neighborhood. We sat at the, at the chicken place uh, and, and fried fish place on the corner, and sitting in a couple of white people from New York, and you, you, can we talk to you? We have a few questions. Um, and, um, and so we asked a hundred, over 100 people. We did some focus groups afterwards. We asked over, we, we would, we would uh, meet people at church and then go with them back to the houses. We had, did over 100 lengthy interviews. And in that interview, we asked every single person the question, is a member of your family currently locked up in the, in the Florida prison system or had been locked up within the last five years? Everybody said yes, 100%. The former mayor of the city of Tallahassee was one of them. The president of the Urban League was one of them. The minister of the largest church in Frenchtown was one of them. Prison is an equal opportunity experience for everybody in Frenchtown. And one of the guys said to us, and I'll never forget this, he said, you know what? You can get away with this because it's a black neighborhood. But if this were a white neighborhood, no one would stand for it. This is uh, sentencing ratios in uh, Brooklyn again. The blue dots are, the blue sections are eight to one. So, which means that for every eight people, eight, eight males aged uh, 18 to 40, one person goes to prison from that neighborhood every year. I'm going to say that again because isn't that mind-blowing? For every eight males aged 18 to 40, somebody goes to prison from that neighborhood every year. And you know what we're trying to do? We're trying to make it seven. If we can just get a little better at this and make it six, as though that's the solution to the problem. And this is finally uh, money expenditure. There are $25 million blocks there. That is blocks where in that year, a million dollars was being spent incarcerating people who lived on that block that year, that year. If I went to that neighborhood and said that block and said, I got a million bucks, spend it on this block. We can do what we're doing now, which is you know locking up some of the people or we can spend it on something else. What's your, what's your pleasure? What do you think the people there would say? You're right. Give me that million bucks. We got some things we want to do here. They're coming back anyway. We got to deal with them. Give me a million bucks. We can get that school so that the computers all run. I first encountered this when I was given a talk in Newark, New Jersey, in a church. And uh, I had just happened to see that there were people in, the, um, uh, uh, in that neighborhood there were five people from that neighborhood who were in reception and diagnostic center in the New Jersey State Prison. They were, they were being classified and, and they were gonna be moved into the, into the prison system. And I costed out what we were gonna spend on them and it was like $2.5 million. I said, we're gonna spend $2.5 million on some residents of this neighborhood. Would you like to have the money? And I thought it was a throwaway line. I, I didn't know what I was saying. And they stood up and applauded. 
Because the money's there. If this is people who live on Park Avenue giving money to people who live in Auburn, New York to watch people who live in Brooklyn for a couple of years and then send them back worse. That's what the system is. That's what mass incarceration experiment was. So today's debate, there's a strong, as I said, there's a strong left-right consensus that America locks up too many citizens. I'm not a big fan of the, of the, of the Koch agenda, but in the, on the area of criminal justice reform, there's, there's almost no daylight between what I believe and what they believe, interestingly enough, right? Uh, and what Cory Booker believes and what I believe, and what Eric Holder believes and I believe. So uh, lots of activity in the state and federal level to reduce the prison numbers. Every state is doing it, everybody. Every state here, you got somebody trying to reduce the number of people in prison. But only five states have reduced their prison populations by more than one-fourth. Even though crime is back what it was in the 70s, only five states have reduced their prison population by more than one-fourth. And only one by one-third, that happens to be New Jersey. So how do we get, how do we do something about reducing this mass incarceration problem? So there are some distractions, and I want to I want to I want to help you to not be distracted by them anymore. Um, for example, there are emotional topics, innocence. It is estimated that two percent or so of the people who are currently incarcerated are innocent of the crimes that they're serving time for. That's a terrible, that's a terrible injustice, but it is not about mass incarceration. You can let them all out, you still have mass incarceration. You, everybody who's on death row, you can execute them tomorrow but it's not about mass incarceration. It's an important issue, it matters, it's a moral issue, but it doesn't matter from the point of view of incarceration, mass incarceration. Reentry doesn't matter. I know we love to talk about reentry, and I know that your communities desperately need to have strong reentry capacity, and I don't at all object to that. Of course that's true, but you don't become in reentry until you've done entry. And, between 50 and 70% of the people who do reentry are going to go back because we watch them so closely and make their lives impossible. So reentry is not the place to solve this problem. Alternatives to incarceration. I am a big believer in probation and alternatives to incarceration. I, I, made, I made my living doing that work for, for about 15 years. I want to tell you that there's no alternative to incarceration big enough and strong enough to, be, to end, end mass incarceration. Most of the time when you do an alternative, it becomes an alternative to a less onerous alternative. Intensive supervision was never an alternative to prison, it was always an alternative to probation. And then finally, rehabilitation. Let me say this. I believe deeply that anybody who is going to prison ought to have every opportunity that you can provide to them to become better citizens and to sort out their lives and to live good lives. I run a large prison uh, college program. We have 500 students taking 200 classes and we give AA degrees and BA degrees at Rutgers University. I'm very, very proud of it. But it's not about mass incarceration. Rehabilitation programs simply cannot be strong enough to do the numbers that you just saw here about what we've done in America. On the average, the most effective rehabilitation programs reduce recidivism rates by 20%. That means a recidivism rate of 40% becomes a recidivism rate of 32%. For most people who are incarcerated, we don't have a, not, a known available program that will actually have that kind of effect, guaranteed. But even if we did, going from a 40% recidivism rate to a 32% recidivism rate would take about 45 years to reduce the incarceration rate by 25% just through rehabilitation. Now, I believe in rehabilitation. It is our moral duty to provide those services, but then it's not about mass incarceration. 
So there's a lot of rhetoric out there about uh, reform. Uh, I'm going to say a few things that I hope will make us a little uncomfortable. It always makes me uncomfortable to say them. Uh, one of them is that we want to get all these people convicted of property crimes. They're the targets for reform. And uh, first-time felony convictions are targets for reform. I had a guy write to me the other day, a citizen in, in New Jersey. I loved it because he, he's a concerned citizen. He wants. He writes to me, you know, and he picks me. You know, he can find my email address on the internet. And he, he says, "We are, it's time to get the marijuana people out of the prison system." Oh yeah, both of them. People convicted of drug crimes, right? You want to get them out. Half of the people who go to prison in Ohio serve less than a year. Almost all of them are convicted of drug crimes. You can work your ass off trying to get them to not go to prison, and you're still going to have a really large prison system because you're going to have all these people serving all these sentences, and they occupy about 15% of the prison population capacity. And by the way, you, you, you get, they're pretty noisy. They come back at high rates. They don't, they're, not, they're not the kinds of citizens who are going to stop using drugs easily. So we always feel like we want to do something about mass incarceration through those three vehicles. And I'm telling you, you can't get there from here. The core reality is that most, more than half the people in prison are there for violent crimes. More than half. People convicted of violent crimes serve the longest prison terms. So you can let out 10 people who would serve a year or one person for 20 years who would have served 30 years. The impact on the prison system is the same. One person versus 10. And your risk, by the way, is much less. So we cannot end mass incarceration without changing sentencing for people convicted of violent crimes. So that's not a really a message, that's not a cheery message to take to the world, right? <laughs> Except that I, I, it is A, true, and B, not that hard. Changing sentencing for violence. First of all, most of the violent crimes, so I'm doing a study of the rest records of a, a cohort of 400 people who were released from the New Jersey prison system for violent crimes in the year 2014. And we went in and we read the arrest records. We started coding things like relationship to the victim, stuff criminologists used to care about back in the day, you know, and motivation and how much violence they use and so on. You find out that, that the, the, the crime title doesn't capture what actually happened a lot of the time. Not that the crime title's wrong, it's just that when a person, you see here, armed robbery. When you hear that armed robber, you think, holy moly. We have a student at Rutgers University who did time for armed robbery. She uh, painted a squirt gun black, stuck, stuck up a bodega to support her drug habit. And when I say that, you go like, oh, hell, help that woman out. Armed robbery. It's a dangerous thing. I'm not saying it's not dangerous. It's, of course it's dangerous. But when I, when I tell you what happened, you don't go, got another student. He was uh, uh, paying for his college education by selling drugs on the college campus. But to buy the drugs, he had to go to a project. And the project was dangerous, so he took a gun. He was driving back, having bought the drugs, and was pulled over for not signaling a turn. And they found a gun in the drugs, and he, he did time for a, a delivery of a controlled substance while armed, a violent felony in the state of New Jersey. Another guy, uh, his drug dealer stole a bunch of money. He went to go get his money back and beat up his drug dealer, aggravated assault. The last two cases are Woodrow Wilson fellows. They came to Rutgers University as students and they won the Woodrow Wilson Fellowship. Rutgers has only had about two, has only had two Woodrow Wilson fellows in the last 15 years. It's a national program, only had two. Both of them started their college pro, uh, careers in prison. <laughs> Both violent, both violent. So the underlying behavior that goes on in these crimes doesn't necessarily, doesn't go with the title. 
in the way you think of it, you hear this aggravated assault, you get scared, I get scared. But when you read something, they were sitting around playing cards, you called my girlfriend a name. I said, don't do that again, or I'm gonna punch you. You did it again, I punched you. Go to prison for three years. Uh, overcharging means that many violent crimes are not what the general public thinks of as violent. So prosecutors get rewarded for making sure that the violent title stays on the crime that the person pleads guilty to. So they'll, they'll deal on the sentence side and make sure the guy gets a violent, because they, he knows down the road, all kinds of things are going to no longer be available because you have a violent crime in your record. All kinds of things. People serving time for violent crimes have, the lower, have lower rates of recidivism on the average. Yeah. Not only just recidivism generally, but recidivism for violent crimes. I'm going to show you some data in a minute. Um, so this story, this, my interest in, in violent, people convicted of violent crimes happened as a result of a meeting with Cory Booker's staff that turned out to be the pre-meeting before uh, Barack Obama came to Rutgers University and gave the commencement address. And we had 12 of our students and they were talking about their lives. And you get enormously moved when you hear students talk about their lives changing by college. And all of them, you know, were, it's called the Mountain View Community. All of them had started out their careers and you know, they were all coming to us from the prison system. And at the end of the meeting, the staff person said, is there anything anybody would like to say? And the president of the Mountain View Association stuff said, yes, I, we love President Obama. We love General Holder. We love Senator Booker. They are wonderful people, but they're making a mistake. And the mistake they're making is about violence. There were, there were 15 students around the table. How many of the students in this room did the state of New Jersey consider your crime to be a violent crime? 12 hands went up, 12 of the 15. We're wasting enormous potential by ignoring the people who are serving time for violence. I'm not saying they're all uh, anything. I'm saying there is such great potential there and we don't even think about it because we write them off from the beginning. When we know these facts to be true, and criminologists have known these facts to be true for a very long time. Finally, length of stay has a little bit to do, has little to do with recidivism. The difference between two years and three years in terms of likelihood of being arrested is zero. Two years and four years, zero. Three years and five years, zero. Study just came out in criminology and public policy. You can, everybody can serve seven months less, and, the, and the, the recidivism rate for the entire group will be zero difference. Zero difference. If you're on the street, seven years, arrest-free, no matter what your crime was, your likelihood of being arrested in year eight is about the same as somebody who never went to prison. Seven years, redemption. So what if we took the problem of mass incarceration by systematic reform rather than this kind of piecemeal, let's do a little bit here, put a program there, reentry thing here, what would happen? So the iron law of prison populations you'll require, remember, says number of people going to prison, how long they stay, and how many of them who go out come back again. That's what determines your prison population. So three iron law proposals I want to make. One, nobody goes to prison for a drug crime or a public order crime. Can't go to prison for possession of drugs. If you have drugs and are selling them, you've got one kind of problem. And if you have drugs and you're selling them because you're using them, you've got another kind of problem. We want to solve both those problems. But you can't go to prison. I mean, New Jersey is about ready to legalize marijuana. So we're doing it with that drug. Length of stay, if we took all of current lengths of stay and reduced them to the level in 1988, most of the increases in length of stay are, are started in 1988. We diverted all technical probation and parole violators from prison. You can't go to prison for breaking a rule that is not against the law for a person who's not under correctional supervision. 
right? You can go back to prison if you break another law, but you can't go back to prison if you just simply disobey us. What would happen? Well, what, do we, what would if we had done this in 2010 when the prison population peaked, and that's the result? We would already be at 50% in eight years. Three simple proposals. So we know what we need to do. We just have to have the will to do it. Thank you. That was Dr. Todd Clear at the Purpose-Built Communities Annual Conference in Orlando in 2018. Aligning the timeline of mass incarceration next to America's troubled history with race, it's not a stretch to say that criminal justice policies have been used to advance a racially motivated backlash to progress on civil rights. Slavery, literally not being recognized as a person, but as property under the law, to Jim Crow's legally enforced segregation, to the lack of prosecution of lynchings and other hate crimes, to the initial exclusion of African Americans from benefits like Social Security, the GI Bill, and mortgage lending, to the incarceration of civil rights activists, to the policy of felons not being able to exercise their right to vote. All different forms, but the intent is still the same. The removal of a generation of employable men from families, jobs, the local economy, and the political sphere erases human capital from which the community as a whole would benefit. That human capital is critical to the health and growth of a neighborhood. Rebuilding human capital that's been removed from a community is a long and difficult challenge. But think about this. How could you help advocate for changes in the criminal justice system through your work in revitalizing your community? And how can you be intentional about working with those who have been caught in the criminal justice system to find a place within the community where they feel valued and welcomed? Find helpful resources on racial equity and holistic community development at purposebuiltcommunities.org and connect with others around the country working towards racial equity by following Purpose Built Communities on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We'd like to thank Dr. Todd Clear for his work and for sharing it with us. In our next episode, we'll hear from Dr. Katherine Phillips, a professor of organizational character, leadership, and ethics at Columbia Business School. She'll talk about how valuing and fostering diversity can make people, organizations, and communities stronger. Being exposed to diversity leads to better outcomes for people. They learn more. Listen to This Is Community wherever podcasts are available or on purposebuiltcommunities.org slash podcasts, where you'll find more information on the Purpose Built model and engaging sessions from our annual conferences. Presentations and videos at each of these sessions are on the website as well. This podcast is created in partnership with HL Strategy, our executive producers are Aton Davidson, Howard Lawley, and Sherry Crawley. Our producer and editor is Brady Hummel. Mixing and mastering is by Matt Honkinen, and our music is from Pitchwire. Fine Productions recorded the conference session featured in this episode. If you like this series, be sure to subscribe and share it. I'm Alexandra Wiggins for Purpose Built Communities, and this is Community. Community.